Hear these words from the book that we love. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if, if you're visiting with us or if you've just been out of town for a little while, we've been in the book of Genesis for a while since maybe two weeks after Easter Sunday. And uh, today we come to this passage, which is known in part for its unanswered questions. For its unanswered questions. And here's what I mean. Uh, we've been reading in the first two chapters of Genesis that God created all things good and very good. And then all of a sudden, there's this tempting, subversive creature that just shows up. Why? How did that, how did that happen? How was a creature made that had the, the capacity to make a very good creation go bad? What about the power behind the creature? Where did evil come from anyway? These are unanswered questions in this text. There's a whole Bible of commentary on it. But there's not necessarily satisfying original answers to that specific question. How did evil get here? I'm going to come back to that at the end. But that's just worth saying. It's a passage famous for, and by the way, it's not like in the 20th or 21st centuries, people reading this text noticed for the first time that these were unanswered questions. As it came down, this was given as given by design. Like there are things that we're not given. And it's been noticed and pondered over for millennia. But it's not just famous for its unanswered question, questions. Um, it's also a passage that's frequently mocked. There's a songwriter who is still around and touring. He was probably at the height of his popularity about 15 years ago. It's not to say he was every, ever very famous. But he performed under the name Pedro the Lion. And he was pretty famous among some Christian audiences as well. And 
around 07, 08, he had this Breaking Up With God album. It's, it's the album where he just decided very publicly to his fan base and to himself and to the world, I'm turning away from the Christian faith. I just can't do it anymore. And the very first track of that album, he has this line. It goes, wait just a minute. Do you expect me to believe that all this misbehaving grew from one enchanted tree? He just didn't, didn't accept it anymore. Like, are you kidding me? This is laughable to me he's saying. And he's entitled to his opinion. I do think there is a tremendous shame, though, if there's a failure to acknowledge, and maybe that's some of you. Maybe you come to this passage and, like, I mean, it's early on, and there's all this reference back to it throughout all the scriptures that come, everything to the right of this in your Bible. And maybe this is one of those passages that is embarrassing to you. It's like, Mike, a, a talking serpent, uh, where did it come from anyway, and a tree that started all this stuff because one, one couple ate some fruit. And if that's where you are, I just want you to know as we look closely at what this text is actually doing and showing, that again, for thousands of years, people have also looked at these verses and said, isn't this exactly right? Isn't this exactly the human condition? Isn't this exactly how temptation works? Isn't this exactly how innocent things slowly and then almost totally get corrupted and start to rot? Isn't this, as much as the unanswered questions are there, isn't this totally true? Many, many thousands of years, many millions have been saying this, and I happen to agree And I just want to show you how this text is a map of, yes, the first sin, but also how every sin works. It is a brilliant drama of how sin still works in your life and mine on a daily basis. And here's the map. Many, many brilliant uh, religious leaders and scholars have mapped this out with more bullet points. I'm going to give you three. I'm going to condense them into three. First, there's the suggestion to sin. And that moves towards entertaining sins. The, the ancients sometimes called it coupling with sin, like you're dating it. You're not, you're not committing to the relationship yet, but you're dating it. That's how they used to, the ancient, the ancient church fathers used to refer to it as coupling with sin. And then thirdly, bondage to sin. Suggestion to sin. Entertaining sin. And then bondage to sin. The depravity and horror that, that really begin getting described in this passage rivals the beauty of the first two chapters. And it keeps going. It gets worse from here. And though the light doesn't go out altogether from God's good creation, this is a map of how easily everything was lost and can still be lost, even though the Spirit is now gaining the ground back, has promised and done some once-for-all stuff and has promised to get it all back, all the goodness of the creation back on the last day. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, though. First, the suggestions to sin. There are essentially three suggestions to sin in this passage. If you look back, the first is in verse one, where the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree 
in the garden? And on its face, the answer is, of course not. It's actually a really stupid suggestion. Did God actually say you may not eat of any tree ever? Of course he didn't say that. He said something closer to the opposite. There was only the one that he said, don't eat from it. But do you see how insidious the suggestion is? He's basically saying, isn't God just so ungenerous? It's just this little hint. Of, it's really not even a half truth. But there's the little bit of a partial truth that there's one tree, and it's blown up into, didn't this ungenerous God just surround you with all this stuff you can't enjoy? That's the first suggestion. Then the second one, the woman says, God said, we should not eat this or we will surely die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die in verse 4. Again, this is a, a half-truth. What's the truth? The truth is they're not going to immediately drop dead. That's not what happens. But what does happen is communion with God is broken, and communion with God is the root of all life. And from here, life starts to decay, and now the human race is enslaved to death, though they didn't drop dead immediately. And before going on to the third, just note the half-truths. I don't know if you knew this, but a bald-faced lie has nothing on a half-truth for deception. A half-truth is way more deceptive because it like dances around the truth. It's like eerily similar to the truth and actually gives it the fragrance of innocence. And that's why it's so incredibly evil. A bold-faced lie is actually just way better than a half-truth because a half-truth is so much more insidious, more deceptive, more destructive. Here's the third suggestion. It's in verse 5. The serpent says, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, there's some truth here, right? What will happen when they eat from this fruit? They will actually begin to have some wisdom about evil. Right now, all they have is wisdom about good. They will begin to know something of evil for the first time. It's true. But what's left out? You know, half-truths always leave out the half that you need most. What's left out is that you will become a slave to evil. I want to suggest that this final suggestion, it's basically saying God is trying to keep you dumb so that he can exploit you and he's just using the threat of death to cow you into senseless submission. I want to suggest to you that this is something like the heart of every sin. The, they haven't committed a sin yet. It's just the suggestion part. But once sin is committed, this is the heart of every sin. What is it? It's saying, here's God's authority. I distrust him. And I'm going I'm to slide his authority right under my own. Right under, right under whatever authority I prefer. This is the heart of every sin. Sin is putting ourselves in God's place. That's the, that's the easier, simpler definition that you can carry around. I'll give you a technical one. Sin is any, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, uh, sin is any 
transgression of God's law, like you break a rule, or it's any want of conformity to God's law. It's like leaving something out that you totally need. Actually, we get both in this passage, sins of omission and commission. But essentially, it's switching places with God. It's not an accident that our salvation is God switching places with us. And we're going to come back there too. The heart of sin is switching places with God. That's the suggestion. And that's the first one. The second thing, second movement, second stop on the map is entertaining sin. Let me just read uh, the very first part of verse 6. Look back down on page 3 in your bulletin. It says, verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. Could you just notice how many different parts of the woman are being appealed to? It says, first she saw it was good for food, so it like made her hungry. This is not just the temptation of the thoughts. Like, I wonder what it would be like to sin against God. It's an embodied temptation. She was hungry. Then it says, she saw that it was beautiful to look at. The eyes were drawn to it. She was dazzled by it. And then, curiosity. She knew that it could help make her wise. Body, eyes, mind. This is a fully mind, body, and spirit temptation. And fighting against sin, it's worth saying, involves all three as well. They involve all three as well. Let me just give you a few examples. You know people in your life who have corners in the city that they can't return to. Why? Because it's not just that sin involves thoughts that you have to battle. It starts there. It does. It almost always, I tried to think of a few exceptions, started with thoughts, entertaining suggestions. But most of our temptations are embodied. I can't go to that place. I can't go to that bar. I can't be in that relationship. I can't access that channel. I can't access something over what the culture tells me a 14-year-old should be able to watch because I know if I do, and some of us mock people like this and call them prudes or legalists, as if their personal desire to abstain is judging us somehow. It's absolutely insane, but we do this. I do this to people. But you know people like this who can't go near. Why? Because it's not just a battle for the thoughts. You're, you're coupling here when you go to these places that you know set the war on, that take the war of temptation to another level. And you know people like this. You know people who battle addictions. And you can't play with the thing that you're addicted to because you're done. This is why, you know, a few years ago, we did a a sermon series on different sins that some pockets of the church have referred to as the, the seven deadly sins. Things like gluttony and lust and greed and anger and pride and sloth and envy. And there's some very old pastoral wisdom that says if you're struggling with sins... It's actually, if you want to grow in the battle with sin, it's actually wisest to start with the most embodied sins and fight those first. Just take food. If you're really struggling with anger or lust or envy, maybe try to fast a little bit. It's not because they're trying to be legalistic. It's because it's actually a little bit easier to do battle with something you can touch. You know, start with that battle against lust or or, or maybe eating ungratefully a little bit first while you're also trying to go after those passions you can't exactly touch. 
going a little bit astray here, but the, the, the point that I want you to, to acknowledge is we're being hunted by a malicious power. And it's not just a battle for your thoughts, although it absolutely is. It's a battle for your whole self. You know, in chapter 4, I don't want to preach ahead, but I'm not going to be here in July, so I'm going to preach ahead a little bit. The image of sin coming after Cain, do you know what God says? God says, Cain, you've got a choice to make right now. Sin is ready to pounce on you. Like sin is a it's a ferocious animal in the shadows. It's not just a transgression. It's also that. But it's also a power that's ready to pounce on you. I tried to, uh, I tried to watch all these new Jurassic Park movies that are coming out. I haven't seen them. Um, I think I've got enough. But uh, I tried to watch the first one with my oldest child to see if he was ready for it. We didn't get there. We didn't make it to the end. He wasn't quite ready for it. I was hardly ready for it when I was 11 when the first one came out. But there's this scene that we got to, it's really scary, where the guy who's like, his job is to take care of raptors. It's like Chris Pratt, but, but not, you know, the earlier guy. And he's like wearing a hunting hat, and he goes out with a rifle to, to hunt escaped raptors. And right when they think they've got a beat on one, he turns to them. He turns to the, the, the other person with him and says, you know, we're the ones being hunted, right? And they fly in from the side. It's terrifying. We turned off the TV. That's how it works. That's how it, it's actually how it works. It doesn't help us in the battle against sin if you're thinking about it in terms of being naughty. And it's not because we're trying to like spiritually overdo it or freak people out. It's the truth. It's a war. And it's not a war primarily against another person or another people group. And not even only against yourself. You're being hunted. And the first thing you can do is trust God, but also know that you need him because you're at war. So, you don't entertain it. You don't go on the date. You can call me a prude or a legalist. Fine. Just wait till we're at war together. It won't feel that way anymore. And thirdly, there's bondage. Actually, the commission of the sins are brief. They're, they're actually really short. It's almost, like, it's, it's almost similar to the crucifixion of Christ. When Christ is actually crucified, it's not all drawn out like Mel Gibson's movie. It's, and they crucified him. So much of it's building up, and then all the significance afterwards. She took from the fruit, she ate, she gave to the man. But actually, there's a really loud silence. Eve's the first to commit the external act, but for, again, for thousands of years, uh, people have noted that God turns to Adam first when he comes looking and says, Adam, where are you? Like, she grabbed it first. Where is Adam? Is a huge question in this text. He's the one in Genesis 2 who's described as the one, the primary one, who's to keep and guard, keep and guard the garden. Keep and tend the garden. But he's the one who's to be on guard. Why? Well, apparently it was an important job. Eve is the first act of commission, but preceding that was Adam's first act of omission. And they both, they both matter.
Anyway, more to the point of what is in the text. What happens in verse 7 and 8? The eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, etc. Shame is what happened. Now let me talk to you about shame for a second. I think first when you're talking about shame, because the church has not done a great job, for all I know, I'm trying to think back, I haven't done that great a job either. I want to speak first about toxic shame, and I'm going to define it for you. Um, I want to get out of the way a little bit about the kind of shame that this text does not have in view, at least not yet. And that's the shame of something done to you, where you are acted upon in a harmful way, and it kind of fuses with your identity in such a way that it becomes part of your story and gets mixed in with your sense of self. And that is a terrible reality that has impacted a lot of people in this church and a ton of people on this block and untold hundreds of thousands in our region. And it's a big deal. It is not primarily what this text has in view, but if that's you, part of what has to happen is God working through his word and his spirit, of course, but also with wise people who love you and have compassion on you need to walk with you for a very long time. And it's just part of your diet of growing in Christ. Now, that being said, there is a kind of shame that is in view, and this might be a little bit unpopular. There is a type of shame that you actually want, that you actually need, that's part of how God orchestrated all things, and it goes like this. There is an appropriate shame in this passage. It is not altogether bad, although it comes out of a bad thing happening. Think about it this way. Do you know someone who is shameless? That's actually not a good thing. Like shame, like if somebody is shameless, that means they don't know how to be ashamed or they're not maybe as ashamed of some things that they've done as they should be. Being shameless is not necessarily a good thing. Here's what you don't do with shame. Here's what you don't do. There seems to be this idea that we correct shame by fleeing from any grid or authority that tells us that there is anything to be ashamed of. Let me say that again. What you don't do with shame is say, I will remove myself, I will go far from any authority or any grid for thinking about life that tells me there is anything to ever be ashamed of under any circumstances. That's exactly what you don't do. And here's the other thing, that's impossible. There will always be a community or an authority, even if that authority is yourself. There will always be some community, though, almost always, just think about social media, that has its own norms and rules, and you do not want to be exiled from them, and you do not want to feel shame in their eyes. There's somebody looking at you. It's just a matter of who. Looking at you. Looking at you. Scrutinize you. Who's looking for them? Who's looking for them? The God of boundless love. The God of boundless compassion. And what does he do? What does he do? He names what they do wrong. This is next week. There is a curse involved in sin. They did something. They crossed a line that invites a curse. And he speaks very plainly about it. But what does he do after that? He covers them. He covers them. 
He does not say, never again will there be any hope whatsoever for the human race. He covers them. Now let me say one last word about shame. For some in this room or some in your life who you might say are shameless, maybe they are just unable to say, you know what? This was my fault. They are like almost unable to ever own what's theirs. It's always somebody else. It's always some other person, some other population, some other force, never something that they did. Let me say something that I hope will give you some compassion on them. Some compassion on them. Most of the people who I know that, like, that are like this, some people call them narcissists, some people just say they're being narcissistic. We love to use that word right now, and sometimes it fits. But usually what is going on, usually what's going on is there is so much shame. There is so much shame that they think if they kind of just begin to come up against it, they will drown. And to name just a few things would be to cons be consumed by it. So what do you do? You pray for them. And then patiently wait to see what they can bear. I want to tell you that this passage actually invites us to bear a little bit of our shame, a little bit, and bring it to the God who loves us. When I say Jesus covers our shame, you know, there's this passage at the end of Genesis 3 where God looks at the fig's leaf, fig leaves they've made for themselves and says, you know, that, that just won't do. You can't just barely cover yourself. You need something more. Let me do it for you. This is a foreshadowing. You know the word atonement? We talk about Christ atoning for our sins. That word literally means cover. Did you know that? Christ completely blots out our sins by his sacrifice. You're covered by him. But what do you need to know in order to receive that? You need to be able to go to him with your shame. You need to not say, it's not true. Get away from any standard that I might be ashamed of ever. You need to own it enough to bring it, and you will certainly be received. You will certainly be wrapped up with a bear hug of compassion that you won't shake off because he loves you that much. That's what Christ did for you. He took your place. He took the punishment. And it's so great that it covers over the sins you've committed. He's in our place, even though our sin was putting ourselves in his. Final word here, folks. Final word on the bondage. It's almost funny. Do you see the last two verses in verse 12 and 13? The man said, hey, it's the woman's fault. And by the way, you gave her to me. So I don't see what responsibility I could possibly have over any of this. And what does the woman say? It was the serpent. It's your fault. It's the enemy's fault. It's God's fault before it's mine. I want to tell you, folks, this is bondage. This is bondage. Is there an area of sin in your life that you're like, I just can't shake off? I want to tell you, there's an already aspect and there's a not yet in every aspect of our, our redemption. You're already forgiven in Christ. You're already saved, even though your full salvation is going to come that last day where he frees you from every pain and every fear and every part of your indwelling, indwelling sin is completely eradicated. You're already saved, even though that's coming. Also, also the, the case with your sin. 
There's ways in which you'll be struggling with your sin till you die. But I want you to know right now that the Holy Spirit wants to work in your life to give you more victory. It's just so clear in our New Testaments. And you know what the first step towards more victory over your sin is? It's confession. It is. It's so subversive in our culture. It's all me. Yes, you've been sinned against. Find out what's you, though. Find out what's you. The enemy is never more at work than when you are holding back from things that you know you ought to own. And I got to tell you, this will bless your family. This will bless your city. You want to know about the cycle of perpetuating violence? It's, you did this, I got to get you back. Not, oh my goodness, what amazing love has come towards me, an unworthy sinner. You better believe this is good news. You better believe it. So, at the risk of saying less by saying more, in Jesus Christ, the ultimate bondage of sin that leads to death is broken. Eternal life has come back. But what are you going to do? Do you know it's possible to be left out of that new resurrection life? How do you do it? Come with your shame to the God who sees it and names it, doesn't look away, You'll feel his gaze, but then just watch it be accompanied by the love of an eternal father who gave up Christ to gain you. Yes, you're that much of a sinner. Yes, you're that much of a child of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.